My name is Jason Brown. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You've got to get into, out the game where you've got into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them, I didn't give anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you yeah. regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today we're talking to Jason Brown. So I'm going to say good evening and good morning at the same time. Um, I'm Jason Brown, ex um, Wales International, ex uh, Blackburn, Gillingham, Leeds, Cardiff, Leyen Orient. Um, football player, I was going to say soccer player, Dick, I'm so used to <laughs> soccer. Um, so yeah, that's me. Hello to you, the listener. Thanks again for joining us on the Man Marking Podcast. Today we've got former goalkeeper, former Premier League goalkeeper, former international goalkeeper, Jason Brown on the podcast. A bit of an extended interview today, so we are going to get straight into proceedings. We have a theme. As always, the theme today is learning to love the person as well as the athlete. And that is our theme. If you pick up on anything else during today's interview, then please email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet us and our handle is at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use that hashtag, where's the talking lads? I will see you briefly on the other side, but I'm now going to hand you over to Jason Brown. You're listening to Man Marking. As I, as I sort of mentioned to you, Jason, I've obviously spent the last week or so putting these questions together and doing some research about, you know, about, uh, you know, your life and your career and, and, and lots of the stuff that, that you've been very open about in, in, in interviews and stuff and some of the experiences that you've had. And I was reading an interview that you did with um, When Saturday Comes, which is back in, in 2017. Mm-hmm. And you briefly mentioned, or the, the writer briefly mentioned in it, an incident when you were very young, about eight years old, about... Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of your mother who died from suicide. What what happened during that incident? Can you remember it? You know, this many years later. Yeah, it's. I we I was about eight something in and around, and I was quite young. I think I'm sure it's about eight. And my mum had a friend that we would sometimes go and see. Her name was uh, Jackie, and. I remember going up to uh, her flat where she lived. Um, I think she lived with her brother at the time. And we went up there and we was knocking on the door and no one was answering the door. And then I remember someone, I think it was her brother who came at the time and then opened up the door and he had a box a punch bag in his in their like living room and you could see her hanging um obviously my mum stopped me at the time and you know that was my 
I think my first real, yeah, my, that was my first time I've seen someone die. My first real dealing with it. Um, and when I say dealing with it, it was probably, you know, something that you block out because I never really spoke about it. It was never, you know, my mum spoke about, my mum didn't speak about it too much that I heard, but as you get older, you realise and, you know, you're like, oh, wow. Um, and then it just becomes something at that age that you kind of um, compartmentalise. Mm. Um, and something that I never spoke about until I spoke about it with my counsellor as I, and that was way into my 30s. So I presume then at the time it was almost, you know, as it as as was probably the would probably be the case for a lot of people because you were so young. It was almost something that I would imagine maybe the adults in your life were trying to shield you from mm. knowledge of that incident. So I guess you probably didn't have any time to process it. I'd imagine. Yeah, you know, as a kid, you're quite blasé about things, aren't you? You know, mm. you're you're inquisitive you're like, hmm, what's that? But then, you know, <laughs> you're more worried about what cartoons are going to come on next or, <laughs> you know, am I going to be able to play with my friends than you are anything else? So it was, it was, so, it was a coping mechanism that I look back now and I look at many things that have happened in my life, many deaths, many people that I've lost and how my dealing with it, apart from my dad, was always just compartmentalizing stuff. Um, and it that that's really difficult because I hadn't really grieved about many things until again, I way in my thirties. And I, I was reading around around that sort of age was when that was when you kind of decided that you wanted to be a, a footballer and, you know, I, I, probably about the same sort of age as you would have thought, yeah, do you know what, I, I, I give this a go. This looks like a good idea. I obviously wasn't as good as you were, Jace, but, you know, I, I had a little go at it. But what was your kind of relationship like with football when you were a, when you were a child? Well, it was it was the, the centre, really. Um, yeah, I got up to other little things as, as kids do, smashed windows, <laughs> climb trees, um, you know, you build like little camps, you find wood, you build camps and stuff like that, you know. So I had all of that, but football was always every day, every day practicing with a, with a ball and a wall. I say that to everyone, like the kids that I coach now and before, you know, my best, my two best friends was a ball and a wall growing up. Um, and I used to practice a lot by myself or play with my friends. But it was also a way for me to really um, get my own back with bullies and, you know, people that were older than me that were racist. Because when you're playing on concrete and you're playing on an estate, and there's walls around you, right? So I was never the smallest kid. So I would then 
in a 50 50 is my opportunity to now get back at you you know where it's looked upon yes it's aggressive but it's an opportunity to show in front of everyone that i'm not scared of you and also a little bit like well this is part of the game um and that happened and a lot happened you know i was on the receiving end to a lot and that was my first real encounter that's when i was like i want to be a football player and it was almost ever since like i was eight years of age i just had blinkers on and that was it you know i didn't let outside things affect me i just compartmentalized it and you know that that was that was my life and i was abused as a kid not um not by my mum or my dad. I was sexually abused as a kid and I never really dealt with that. That was part of my coping. And it's amazing how when things like that happen to you, the trauma that happens to you, how you, as a young kid, develop this way to navigate through the world and not let these things affect you. Or, or I suppose it's the innocence of not understanding what that is. The instance that you just talked about there Jason about being abused when you were a child I, I presume those are the type of things again similar to the incident that we spoke about before um with with your, your mother's friend again that you wouldn't have spoken about until you were much older correct yeah, yeah. And was, did you find then that that kind of played a part into how you sort of grew up and and how that kind of you know, the type of person that you became and as you came into football, the sort of decisions that you made and the person that you that you ultimately became as an adult, how much do you think those childhood experiences kind of shaped where you where your kind of path went? Oh, for sure. You know, when being, like, abused has affected my relationships, um, you know, but I didn't know that that was affecting my relationships mm. because in, I was never thinking about what happened to me as a, as a child. I never once thought about it. But again, many years later into my thirties, you, you speaking with my counselor made me realize that how that has affected my relationships. Um, and there's parts of me, you know, I, I then started to realize I had, there's two different sides of me. It's almost like at the age of eight, I kind of put Jason aside. Mm. And now Jason, the, the athlete, the warrior is taking over and nothing, no, there's going to be nothing outside of that that's going to hurt me. There's going to be nothing outside of that that's going to affect me. Of course, there's going to be things, um, you know, you're gonna relationships or whatever um, that are gonna not work out. And there's always that sudden of, oh my God, what am I gonna do? But then there's that boom, don't care, boom, I'm moving on. And that's, I always say to people, that's possibly one part of me as a person that I really dislike. Cause when it comes to things like that, I, I'm really, really cold. Um, many people, you know, some people may say I'm in it, um, I'm an extrovert, but I'm I'm definitely an introvert. I'm comfortable in my own, by my own. Um, 
you know, I I try to align my, myself. But again, that's not always a good thing because I sometimes then push people who are close to me away. Um, especially if I feel there's some type of rejection. It's just like, okay, boom, I'm, let me just focus mm. on me now. It's all about me. And I tend to put these walls up and it's not a good thing, but that's been my coping mechanism for many, many years. I've not been able to explain it like I can now because I never understood it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's like, as you when I received the email from yourself, yeah, it, I'm still learning who I am. I'm still trying to cope with what's gone on and trying to not let it ambush me. Mm. But it does, it still does. Um, every now and then, you know, things can creep up. Yesterday, I wasn't feeling too great. Um, and, you know, today's a new day, grateful of waking up and it's like, okay, let's try and build bit by bit today. I, I, I have coping mechanisms that I've learned along the way in regards of not putting too much pressure on myself and building bit by bit and looking at the little victories and helping that to rebuild my confidence and get me back into being a more happier place and wanting to be around people where sometimes, like, as I said, like I felt last night, for example, I don't want to be around no one. Today, I wanted to get up and just be around no one, just be by myself, have to take a time out, you know, not answer my phone, and regroup and go again. But I can't do that because there's also the danger of that. I feel that if I do do that is when you start thinking to yourself, I just don't want to be here no more. Mm. And that's a dangerous place to be in. And I've been there before. And I don't want to go there again. I don't. So I try, as I said, to have coping mechanisms and don't put too much expectation on myself and slowly build, 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 give myself, try and get back into my routines of, that I like to do in the morning, cleaning, have my breakfast, go for a run, plan my sessions for the day, answer my emails, you know, maybe watch a little bit of football that's on and, and news and then go from there. So right now speaking to you is me in my uh, coping mechanism of, of rebuilding bit by bit. And this is the first bit of me saying afterwards, great, I've done something productive, I've done something well, and taking that little bit of victory to then slowly build and then yeah. go into, I'm going to go coaching today. I was going to maybe not go, but I'm going to go. And then it's not putting too much expectation on myself and not putting expectation on others because I feel that burden. If it doesn't go right, I take that on me. And then that could easily have a, yeah. have a downward spiral. So it's, it's little things that I try and put in place. It, it's interesting, Jason, you you mentioned there about when you were very young, kind of 
separating almost the two sides of you know the the Jason the person Jason the the footballer almost to, to, to some extent when you were when you first went into a kind of more uh, professional football environment when you were picked up by Charlton how did that kind of feel was that something you were excited about was that something you were nervous about what was that whole process like well when I first went into the building I didn't understand the magnitude I just thought okay that's it I didn't understand that you have to clean your boots you have to clean the pros boots get the <laughs> equipment ready um, then train then go college so all of that was new to me and if I be honest I really struggled in the first I think few months I really did it was difficult um, and I think it showed it reflected in my training and stuff like that and then I ruptured my hamstring I ruptured my hamstring and you know at 16 rupturing your hamstring no one at the club knew anything about it I've never seen that before mm. and I was on crutches for a long period of time. I think I had to, well, I had to learn to, how to walk. I, I was on crutches for nearly nine months. Um, I had to have an operation to reattach it. Um, at first they wanted to cut me from the top where my, the bottom of where my bum is all the way down to my knee to open, to open it up and repair their hamstring. But luckily they didn't have to do that. The skull was probably about I'd say about 12 inches. So, mm. so, uh, no, so I'd say about 10 inches, sorry, about 10 inches. Sorry, the scar wasn't too long. So I was quite lucky in that sense. But then that also, that was possibly a changing point for me of understanding my roles and responsibilities um, growing up. And again, it was just that blinkers of boom, right, that's it. So I was training. You know, once I started getting back into the swing of things, I was going in on Sat Sundays, days off, you know, when no one else was at the training ground, I was going in. When everyone's gone home, I'm not coming out at the training ground sometimes until five, six o'clock in the evening where I've done extra. And, you know, that work ethic, and I had good people around me. I had likes of Dean Kiley seeing how he worked. I had a guy called Michael Cole, who was um, the physio, um, was doing some goalkeeping. He was amazing. I had Lee Smelt, who was amazing at the time. I didn't like him when he first came in because <laughs> he was a police officer. And growing up, like, you know, on an accounts estate, you're not grown to, to like police officers. So, <laughs> but Smelt, he helped me so much. And I had one or two really good friends there. And, you know, I, I just had my blinkers and I was working hard. So be it. You know, I was awarded with another year there. You know, I was involved in a game in the Premier League there. I was training with the first team a lot. So I really turned things around. But also that gave me that real work effort. I can do this and no one's going to tell me I can't. Though I already believed it, but that injury really made me... I'd say realize I didn't, it wasn't a matter I just sat there and went, oh, right, I'm going to do this. It was just something just happened naturally, just took over. The, the Jason Brown, the drive just took over. And um, yeah, it was, 
that helped, but it's, as I said to you, when I first went in there, it was difficult. It was difficult dealing with everything, but then the injury was the, was the turning point for me. And I was reading that while you were at Charlton, when you were about 18, you were in, you were a witness to a, the incident in which um, Pierre Belangi tragically died during a fitness exercise. Yeah. I, I must admit, I, I'd never heard of this incident until I was doing the research for this interview, Jason. For people who are listening who, who may also not have uh, known what happened, could you explain what, what went on that day? Yeah, we, we went to an army camp to train. Um, I think it was for a week. And we, we was at an army camp. We was training. So we was doing army training as well as football training. And we then when we had to wear these big ovals, you know, like, um, you know, like mechanics wear the big ovals. Yeah, yeah. We had to wear them and we was running for a long time in them through bushes. This army officer, he took us on a, a run and then um, we came to like a pond and no one asked, can anyone swim? You're going through the pond, but, you know, you're already sweating. You've got stuff underneath and Pierre never came back up. Um, and, you know, when that happened, there was just this realization, where is he? Where is he? And the guy was going in, diving in to try and see and couldn't find him. We get back to the army base and then like, we're just told all hush, hush, quiet, quiet. Um, you know, no one's allowed to speak to their parents or nothing. This has gone on. Um, and that was that was tough because again it's that realization what's going on what is all of this and you're not allowed to speak to your parents at first and then later on you are but you're not allowed to talk about it there's police who want to come onto the army site they're not allowed obviously military police take um president there and you know it then starts coming out and then you start hearing the stories and the army officer trying to blame us saying we was bullying Pierre and we was messing around, which wasn't true. Um, you know, all of them things as, as kids um, was difficult. And at the time I was quite vocal about it. I went and see members of staff and I said, I don't think we can make, I'm sorry, I don't think decisions can be made because, you know, decisions were being made on, on us in regards of whether they're going to keep us and stuff like that. That's a lot to happen in, in such short space of time. Um, and people were affected differently. You know, there was some group type of therapy offered, but it wasn't much support from anyone, from anyone, you know, from the club, from the PFA, from anyone really, there wasn't much support there. Um, did you, did you, you and the other lads talk, talk about it at all? Or was it kind of just encouraged to kind of ignore it almost? Yeah, I think like football, football just moves on, right? And mm. I'm not saying that's, I'm not saying that is right, but that's, that's football. And that's kind of how it felt. Of course, people were sad. Of course it was, it was horrible, 
and we all felt that. But it was almost like, you look at it now, I look back now, how would I been if I was a member of staff and stuff like that? It didn't just feel like there was that, you know, there's that support. I suppose, listen, talking about mental health and issues like this is not easy. And it definitely wasn't easy back then mm. because it would have just been like, let's just, you know, get on with it. Come on, lads. And it wasn't, I'm not saying anyone just said that. No one said that, but, you know, there wasn't many, the PFA, no one came forward and said, okay, as I said to you, there was like group therapy. And I think one or two may have gone and seek therapy outside, but it's like anything with, with mental health, people don't realize, people think once you have a few conversations, you're good. Mm-hmm. The aftercare and the knock-on effect, and that was tough. But then from my personal point of view, again, there was that blinkers. You know, I, 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 met, I did, as I said, say, look, I feel, you know, decisions on people is difficult because a lot's mm-hmm. gone on people's performances are going to change, people affected. But decisions were still made. And at the Christmas time, I went and see Alan Kerbishley, who was the manager at the time. And I said, what's going to be happening with myself? And they felt it was a bit too early to make a decision on me. Um, There was a lot of goalkeepers there at the time, senior goalkeepers. I think they were saying like five senior goalkeepers in front of me. And... You know, I went and see them about three weeks later and they said, look, you know, we've got some senior goalkeepers. It may be better you find something else. And I, and I, you know, I did. I, um, it was, it was okay. You know, I, I felt okay about it and I believed in myself and, you know, I suppose that's part of it. As I said, just blocking all of that out, what happened possibly six months prior or less than six months prior was just blocked out and, never spoken about how did you um how did you kind of deal with the sort of uncertainty of leaving Charlton and then I know you'd had some trials I believe one of them was at Sheffield United and mm. some other places as well and then eventually end up at Gillingham how did you deal with that period I mean you said there Jason you've got a lot of self-belief and what have you what was that kind of interim period between Gillingham and Charlton like well I I was, I'm lucky because my mum and my dad have a tremendous work ethic and I was brought up that way. Um, and I had a real belief in myself and Dean Kiley, who got on really well with Neil Warnock and um, Kevin Black were organised for me to go and have a trial there. They was looking for a goalkeeper um, back up to Simon Tracy. And I went there, I played, I trained, I felt I'd done well, played in a game done well and I thought okay I'm gonna get something and then they was like look we're just looking for someone with more experience so I was like okay you know I was as I was getting on the train I got a phone call from a scout called Bernie I can't remember his second name at Gillingham and he said look we've seen you play and we'd like you to come down and have a trial so I did and you know in and amongst that my granddad passed away my mum's dad um, and it was funny enough, my granddad passed away. Um, and when I was there, he was like, you know, 
you'll have to get me a ticket. Um, and if I remember correctly, my granddad passed away and I played in a game the next day. And then I got offered a contract the next day. Was that for, for Gillingham? Yeah. So again, that's that's that blinkers again. Mm. Um, of course, there was an emotion there. Of course, you know, you don't want to lose a family member and you're upset. But I was able to play the game and played it well and got on with it. And I remember ringing my mum afterwards and saying, like, they want to offer, they've offered me a two-year deal. And, you know, it was, a, it was an amazing feeling. But I, in and amongst before, um, while I was on trial at Gillingham, I actually applied for a job to clean bus shelters. <laughs> um, and I think someone said to me the other day, the application's still open, or my <laughs> application's <laughs> still uh, But yeah, um, I, I, I applied for that. Um, but again, it's, it's weird because it's that side of me that was just blinkers and just dealt with things. And I suppose looking back on it now, it, it makes sense from a kid of eight years of age dealing with that. Just, it was just normal. Which sounds weird, right? No, no, I can, it almost, as you, I think the words you used at the start, compartmentalized, I think that's, that's the, the way to look at it almost in a way is that as a child, it's very difficult to understand or even process any of that information. And particularly, as you say, at a time when, when you were growing up, even though it doesn't feel as though it was that long ago in, in, in the in the grand scheme of things, conversations around things like mental health were entirely different back then, weren't they? So it yeah. would be easy to just think, well, I don't like this feeling and I don't understand it, so I'm just going to move it to the side mm -hmm. and then try and concentrate on on something else. And that 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 feels like a kind of perfectly natural way and probably a, the way that a lot of men would deal with that type of thing, I would imagine at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's that's probably not an uncommon experience, not the, to the severity that the kind of what you went through, but I mean, the way that you kind of dealt with it, I would imagine it's probably, probably fairly, fairly common for a lot of people who would have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. In terms of when you were at Gillingham, it was obviously... It was obviously a really exciting time for the club, and you're very well thought of at Gillingham, even even still now, aren't you? You know, I was doing some when I was doing the Google and I'm gonna have you, and there's a few little bits and bobs, you know, um, you know, Gillingham legends features and things like that, and yeah. you played a lot of matches there in a, in the five seasons, and they were sort of probably arguably punching above their weight in the in the oh, in, in the championship yeah. at that time. Um, I mean, myself and the other two lads who do the podcast. We're all Trammy fans, so. We're quite used to have been playing at the same level as Gillingham for a long time. So it, 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 that must have been just an amazing time to be part of the club and to be a first team goalkeeper and, you know, to be to be sort of living that dream that you've been chasing after. Yeah. No, it was. It was it was great. Um, and it happened and it changed so quick, you know. I remember I used to go back to Cholton every now and then and, and see some of my friends. I used to... Um, Sometimes go and do some training with with Dean Kylie and Mickey Cole. Um, still, on a Sunday, um, and I went from playing academy football, obviously training with the first team at um, Cholton, to training to a first team player training 
with the first team and being on the bench in the championship. And, you know, we, we big clubs were down there at the time. You remember Blackburn were down there when Coley was there and that and, and stuff like that. So you look back and you go, wow. Um, and it did. And then I think I was at Gillingham a year. And then I... And then I got the last 10 games of the following season. Um, being at Gillingham at the time, there was times I wasn't even on the bench. And not because it was my, anything to do with my performances, is that the manager at the time, Andy Essentiler, who, recent, who had recently just became the manager, what, what, sorry, was a manager player, had a lot of ex-teammates in the team or in the squad. So back then, I think it was only five substitutes, if I'm right, on the bench. And Hesse had to try and keep everyone happy. And the easiest thing would be is I'm the youngest, I'm the goalkeeper, leave me off the bench. And you had Vince Bartram. So going through that, that helped because that I could have either sulked and, and gone like that or I fired and I kept fighting. Well, sorry, or I fought and I kept fighting. And then I ended up in in the first team and playing um, and getting the last 10 games and playing well in them games, which then I started the following season and the rest is history, as they say. Being at Gillingham was great because I had, I already had a work ethic, um, being at Gillingham was very humbling. Where at Cholton, my kit, my training kit was washed. I just turned up every day. It was there on a little um, on a ledge, folded. I'd get it, go and train. Where at Gillingham, you had to drive to the training ground. So you get changed to the stadium, drive to the training ground, train, then jump in your car, drive back to the to the stadium, get showered, take your kit home, wash it. Or my mum did at the time. <laughs> um, so, you know, that was a real humbling, grounding thing for me. And you're playing in the, at that time, goalkeepers playing at the age of 19 was very rare. Mm. It, it just didn't happen. I think it was me and Greeny, me and Robert Green. Greeny was at Norwich. I was obviously at Gillingham. And it just didn't happen. And we played against Tranmere and teams like that. I played at their stadium. And it was it was amazing. Um, you know, I, I'm not regarded as one of the tallest goalkeepers, just being six foot. But it just, my career just went boom like that. Um, and yeah, playing for Wales, under 20s, under 21s, captaining Wales, winning... Wales Young Player of the Year, still the only goalkeeper to ever do that, you know, was an amazing, an amazing time for me. Um, and I had some good senior pros around me as well that would keep us level-headed because we had a good mixture. We had a good blend. We had some senior pros, but we had some really good young players, myself, Marlon King, Naira Nosworthy. Um, and that helped. But... There's also, you know, I was dealing, I was going through that. And then when you get injured, it was difficult. I remember I got injured and there was a lot of clubs looking at me at the time, Premier League clubs. 
Birmingham were really interested. And then my fire, I, I tore my fight and then I rushed back. They rushed me back, Hesse and the managers and that rushed me back. And then I tore it again. And then I was out for longer. And then, you know, I missed parts of the season and then they needed to bring someone else in, Steve Banks, which they done. Um, which then was difficult for me because now it's like, okay, I'm maybe not the number one. Banks, he's a decent goalkeeper. And then you fight for your place. Um, and that was tough. That, that was tough. Um, but that's the other side of football. It changes like that. And I think the blinkers of just compartmentalising it, just that helped. And having that work ethic like I, I got, that I already had in, uh, installed. Um, did you say, um, did you find that this the second the, you know the, the, doing your thigh did you find that more difficult than when you did your you know when you ruptured your hamstring when you were younger was that a much more difficult experience because yeah. you had the taste of the yeah. first team? Yeah, for sure. And it's not just the taste of the first team. You can there's possibly big moves. You know, financially, you know, you're, you you've got a chance of getting to the Premier League. If you're going to, you know, I think the price was, that was being brandished around two to five million pounds. And at that time, that was a lot of money. And yeah. with the possibility of moving on, you're going there, then you're going to be playing. You're the first team goalkeeper, which would have been great for me. Um, and the Premier League is the biggest league in the world. There's no two ways about it. Um, and yeah, it was difficult. I found myself drinking a lot. Um, I recently, not long, got married. I had a child. My ex-wife had postnatal depression. I didn't know anything about it. She didn't know anything about it. We didn't know. And like how I said, what tends to happen is when I feel like someone's boom, I just close off and hold them at a distance. I don't want you nowhere near me. And again, that's the child coming out in me. Um, and it was difficult. It's extremely difficult because it was just like, why is this happening? Everything had changed in the blink of an eye. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really difficult. And as football being, you'll get replaced. And that's what happened. And then you 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 do eventually work yourself back into the into the teams, don't you? And then made that big move, which was up to, to Blackburn, yeah. which I think at that time, Gillingham had been relegated down to Division 2, which is League yeah. 1 now. So that was obviously a big step up in terms of, you know, I mean, Blackburn at the time, I mean, they still are a big club, but at that time, obviously, pretty established Premier League club. Was it Mark Hughes was in charge at the time? You know, some big players like David Bentley and people like that involved with the club as well. And what was that kind of step up like in, in environment and in, you know, in the quality and all the rest of it? That step up was, was huge. Um, you know, you're training with possibly one of the best no, definitely one of the best foreign imported goalkeepers in Brad Friedel. Um, tremendous pro, um, good person, and working with him was amazing. And then, as you said, the likes of Bentz, you know, you've got Robbie Savage. Okay, technically not the best, but Robbie Savage <laughs> is a big name. Um, two guy, unbelievable player. Um, 
you know, and, and there, there was a lot of top, top players, Brett Emerton, you know, Ryan Nelson, great leader. Um, you had and Benny McCarthy, Rocky Santa Cruz. So, you know, coming from Gillingham was always going to be difficult because people are going to be like, what, who's this guy? But it, it was at first, it was a little bit okay. But I think, I feel that I made a good impression. I think there was maybe surprise because initially I was brought in there as kind of joint number two, but then I was established as firmly as number two and that would happen pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, I also felt I deserved the right. I played o over 150 games. I wasn't coming in there someone who's only played 20 games. I played mm -hmm. games at a decent level. I already had played against some of these guys. But also being at Wales and being around the likes of Giggsy, Speedy, um, Speedo, and then, you know, Craig Bellamy, you know, there's pressures there as well. And I was able to handle it and have that self-belief. Um, and that was a great experience. And being there, you learn a lot. Um, it's a different type of professionalism, which I had to adjust quite quickly. Um, and you're earning a lot of money. Mm. And that's where I felt when I first got there, I was focused, but I feel maybe year two is when I maybe, I felt that I was still focused, but as a person I was changing and I didn't realize it. I was becoming very materialistic. I was depressed. I was depressed. We, you know, I had, we had bills that needed to be paid and they was paid. Um, but I, my ex-wife at the time, she wanted to take that on in terms of paying the bills and I allowed that. But by her doing that, I also just distanced myself really from responsibilities. Um, and, you know, it's just like, if I break this laptop now, don't worry, I'll just buy a new one. And that's where I, as I said, I started my depression. I feel I recognized my depression because that was my outlook. Everything was to try and if I felt a little bit down, I'll just buy something. I'll buy a new car. I'll just go yeah. buy something. And that was not me as the per that was not me as a person. And then when Sam Allardyce came in, you know, we have to remain fit. And part of being fit was your body fat being low. And my body fat, the requirement was 12%. My body fat, I think, was 14 at the time. So I was only 2% out. But it was still out. And that's when my eating disorder started to develop. Um, because I got fined two weeks wages, which was a lot of money. Mm. Um, and I, I, I went to a place in Italy, which is like a detox as a health place, which is, um, Sam Allardyce recommended. I went there, I lost, I think in, in six days, I lost 11 kilos. Um, so I had to buy brand new clothes to go home in, um, <laughs> and it felt great to lose it. But then the difficulty was I didn't know how to maintain it. Mm. And people were trying to help me, but I didn't want the help. I was, I was like, yeah, 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 when I meant no, no, no. And 
I would make myself sick. There was, you know, if I had a meal, a nice meal, and I thought, oh no, I've had too much now, you know, I'd make myself sick. I would sometimes go for a run at four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning for an hour. You know, I would sometimes go upstairs, try my clothes on to see if they still fit me. You know, and if I didn't feel that, I'd make myself sick and then go for a run. And it was dealing with all of that to try and keep my weight down. And it was a huge pressure. And I don't feel, I didn't feel I was being put under pressure by anyone, but it's that not wanting to get fined. And this now perception that I had in my mind, oh, I'm fat, I'm overweight, blah, blah, blah. And as I said, I was already deep into my depression then. And it was, it was horrible. I wasn't sleeping. Some days I was sleeping only four hours a day. Um, and that was a lot to try and keep up on. And, you know, because you're relying on spending to make you happy, you're not taking responsibility of things. It starts getting out of control and it can quickly get out of control, regardless of how much money you earn. Because what people don't realize, the more money you earn, the more problems you have. You, you, you know, your, your volume of debt becomes bigger because you can afford it, right? You spend uh, to your means, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And that what that's what was happening. Um, Did you, yeah, I, presume, I presume at that time, Jason, you didn't, you couldn't verbalize any of that to anybody at the club or didn't oh. want to? No, no, <laughs> no, I can't. I, you know, one of my friends and one of my best friends used to say to me sometimes, you're anemic. They never heard me be sick or nothing, but the amount of weight I lost. Um, and I look back now and I say, yeah, they hit the now on the head. Did they know? But no, no, I couldn't go and speak to no one about that. Um, you know, how can you have, how can you have problems, right? You're earning a lot of money. How can you have problems? Why should you have problems? You know, you, you're in a world where you've got to be tough. You don't want to be perceived as being weak. Like if I go and tell someone I've got an eating disorder, they may get rid of me. Then what do I do? Um, if I go and tell, you know, if I ask for help, you know, I don't need help. That that was my mindset. I don't need help. I ain't crazy. I don't want, I shouldn't be in a white, you know, a straight jacket or anything like that. I'm not crazy. I'm fine. You know, and I remember there was one time like my friends, my good, my two of my really good friends said to me, we don't like being around you. You're not the same person. You've changed. And my mum even said to me, you've changed, which was real sad and humbling. And I then started to try and address my, address it and open my eyes a little bit more, which I felt that I did, but I still was struggling with a lot of things. And I buried my head, buried my head in the sand with a lot of things financially, mentally, physically. I just did. I just didn't want to hear it. Now is the boom. Okay. I don't want to hear it. Keep everyone out. People giving me advice, trying to help me. Don't want no help from no one. Um, I'm okay. And when I left Blackburn, and I went to to Aberdeen, it started coming out more. And, you know, there was days I'd sit there and I'd finish like two bottles of Prosecco. Um, I was just so low. I just sat on the sofa, but I didn't know I was depressed. I was too deep in it. 
one thing that I think is quite interesting, Jason, and something I wanted to ask you was, you 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 mentioned playing for for Wales, and you 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 were with Wales quite a lot, and you played alongside, as you say, Ryan Giggs, Craig Bellamy, players like that, and and Gary Speed as well, and and obviously, as everyone knows, Gary Speed died from from suicide in in 2011, and mm-hmm. you you played with him, so would have known him, and, and presumably would have had some level of, of friendship with him at the at the, at the time. Did your attitudes or thought processes or knowledge of your own depression or mental health or any of that type of stuff change once you heard the news about Gary Speed dying? No, my, it was just like, oh, wow, how can you get to that point? I'd never let that happen to me. But I didn't know. I didn't know what is depression. I, I didn't know. I wasn't aware of it. No one explained to me what what depression can be, the levels of depression, um, how things affect you. Um, yes, I knew Gary Speed. Gary Speed, when he first took over, Martin Markson called me, and he was like, "Look, the gaffer Gary Speed at the time asked me to give you a call. You know, now you're going to be looked upon as one of the senior goalkeepers, the senior players. You know, he wants you to." be strong, you and a few others. And, you know, when you come in the squad, it'll mentor these kids. So it was great. And then when I joined up with them, you know, it was great meeting up with him, Brownie, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was, everything was great. Um, and it was such a good guy. So when it happened, it was like, wow. And then there was like, you know, uh, the stories obviously was floating about, um, about depression and stuff like that. And it's like, wow, you never knew that. Because speed, I would, be, you know, when I was a young, when I was in the under twenty ones, and like our rooms were upstairs, their rooms were downstairs at the Valley Club Morgan, and you know they had the table tennis down there, and we were sometimes allowed to go down there, and I loved playing table tennis, and I trained with the first team quite a bit, and I'd go down there and I would play and Speedo's door was right there and you know sometimes he'd have his door on the latch you can hear him playing his guitar you know you ever every time you saw him he always had a smile on his face tremendous pro you know good looking chap you wouldn't have known you wouldn't have known and even when we joined up and he was the manager you know he was always positive always happy walking around but you wouldn't have known then when that happened and the news broke it's like oh my god that's so sad you know, was, that it was, was was that a, was was it's it's it, it's interesting. I find that like the dynamic of it really kind of interesting. That because obviously he was Wales manager at the time, and then so when you kind of the squad meets up again, or when you're back together for for future matches, is it something that players talk about? Did you find that there was? conversation about it between players or was it still an environment where it just wasn't you know a, a kind Not of about place? the depression side of things never no one ever really discussed the depression side of things of course there were stories that were circulated in regards of his personal life and him and his wife and stuff like that um but nothing in regards of the mental health side of things no one understands no one understands. I'm sure you could go into a, a, an academy right now. I'm sure you could go and speak to pros and ask them. And at many athletes, they wouldn't understand. They don't understand. And it's, it's not their fault, right? It's us as a society. And when I say us as a society, collectively, government, um, 
governing bodies, football, FIFA, UEFA, don't just pay this off as it, oh, it's Mental Health Month. That's why I don't really like participating in Mental Health Months, Black History Month. Why is it only dedicated to that one month? I don't have depression for one month. I carry it around me. I, I, I treat my depression as a, uh, as like an addiction. I'm in recovery. Yeah. Right now, I've had a little wobble. Now, what, I, what I've learned to do over the years is when I had my breakdown and they wanted to give me medication, I said, no. And I suppose this is part of the Jason Brown, not the person. Jason Brown, the person, had the breakdown. Jason Brown, the athlete, was then compartmentalized. Jason Brown, the, per the person wanted to feel the pain, wanted the sleepless nights, wanted the heartache, wanted the um, not eating, wanted the, the tears, because I wanted to feel that pain. In order to feel that pain and recognize, I can then try and have coping strategies. So that's why I can speak so openly and say, this is me having a bit of a low. But I've started to realize it's my, it's my birthday next Tuesday. And what tends to happen when I get near my birthday, this is a normal thing. When it comes to the anniversary of my dad passing, this is a normal thing. I tend to have a bit of a dip. Um, and no one knows the levels, the different levels of depression. There's, so, there's different levels. Like, as I said, you know, what I've said to yourself and what you've probably already read, many people will be like, whoa, whoa, you've been sexually abused. It's hard to believe, right? I didn't, mm. do, do you want to hear what the, the, the funny thing is? When I spoke to my counselor and it took us about a year and a half to unlock all of that. Because I started being able to piece things together why at certain points in my life I acted, done certain things. And when I spoke to my counsellor um, and I started to realise where I'm at, I was then able, as I said, to, to be able to put these things together and have coping mechanisms. And when I spoke to him about the child abuse, my mum's friend dying. I actually thought I was lying. I said that to him and I said, I said, um, Nick, I feel like I'm lying to you. And he said to me, Jason, you're not lying. That's, that's why I believe you. That's why it's authentic because you're telling the truth. It's just you've compartmentalized it so much that where you're at, it's hard to believe and take in. And he used to say to me when I used to leave, he said, you need to take care of yourself now because you're going to have a big dip. Mm -hmm. He said, Was that because you've kind of dug into a load of stuff and then... Yeah, you're coming to terms with it. Reality kicks in. Reality kicks in. You know, you, it's like... For example, I had a bike accident about a month or so ago, riding down a hill way too fast, going down a hill at 40 miles an hour, went bang, straight over the top, boom, smashed all my face. 
at the time, I'm I'm like bloody hell. Is my teeth still there? Oh, my teeth are there. I'm great. I'm okay. <laughs> Didn't realize half my nose is missing. Got a cut there, busted lip and stuff like that. Next day, I feel the pain. I'm like, wow. Mm. <laughs> and that's what it's like. Is yeah. when you when you when I first opened up all of that. Yes, there was this big, and as I said to you at the time, I said to him, and I did, I said, I think I'm lying. Why am I making it? But then it started, and that's when he explained to me, you're not lying. He said, because you're sharing it and how you're feeling and it feels like a lie, it's hard to come to terms with because you've just locked that away. But in order to me, in order for me to, to grow as a person, uh, I need to understand all of that because it has affected my relationships for sure, 100%. And you, you've mentioned there, Jason, about feeling as though you, you had a, a breakdown, I think was the, the word that you used, and, and, and was, was all this sort of stuff and, and for you to come to a point where um, you were able to kind of start to engage with your, with your depression and engage with your mental health and try and kind of sort of deal with some of those feelings that you were going through was that towards the end of your career was that after your career or do you remember Uh, kind of when that sort of started to happen when that process began to happen there was the time when I was at Blackburn things would get tough Um, as I said the eating disorders but I didn't realize I didn't know what I was going through I, I you know it's just like, come on, Jay. Then once I left Blackburn, I went to Aberdeen. Um, again, I didn't realise how deep I was in. There was times I'd just sit in the living room and wouldn't have no telly on, no nothing, just would sit there, you know. Um, when I reflect back on it now, when I came down to, when we came back from Blackburn down to London, you know, I would, there was t- I just didn't have no go. I didn't want to get out of bed. And I started realizing all of these things when I look back and I'm like, wow, I was that far in. Yeah. But then, you know, I started getting, I was out coaching. I started like doing bits of coaching and saying, okay, doing bits with wows and stuff like that. And then it was January 2015. My dad passed away. And I spent the last 10 days in hospital with him every day until he slipped away. And I remember coming home and I I didn't leave his side the whole time. And I remember sitting on my sofa and my ex-wife at the time, I, you know, she's like, come let's go to bed. And I said, she's like, look, come on, you need to get up. She's like, Jay, you can't just sit here. The kids need you. I need you. And I said to her at the time, I said, I'm sorry. I can't be a husband right now. And I can't be a father. And I just sat there all night and pitch black until the next morning. Um, And I was like that for a few days. And then, you know, you slowly start get back into things and stuff like that. Um, And then after you bury him, you know, you start, you got to slowly get back into things. I went back into, I remember I was at Dartford at the time. I was playing semi-pro and I was playing semi-pro and coaching. So I was ready to make that transition. 
I'd already mm-hmm. got most of my badges, so I was like ahead of the game. My thought, my thought process was like when I was when I was at Charlton and I left to go to Gillingham, I asked to be released early because I wanted to be ahead of the game. I wanted to be ahead mm-hmm. of the other people that are coming out wanting trials. So I wanted to be ahead of people my age coming out or my era wanting to come out of the game, going to coaching because I'm already. By the time they come out and retiring, I've already got two years' experience on yeah. you. Boom, and. I remember I was at Dartford at the time and the manager, he was brilliant. I can't remember his name and I apologize if he is this, but he was brilliant with me in regards of that. And he said, look, when you're ready, you can come back. I came back and I remember playing in a game. Before I felt I was okay. And I remember playing in a game. Something had just gone. I did. I'm a competitive person. So I don't play in charity games because, as I said, there's two there's two sides of me. There's Jason Brown, the athlete, and there's Jason Brown, the person. Jason Brown, the person, is here now speaking with you. Whatever you need, I will be open. Jason Brown, the athlete, when we play, is not a nice person. And I, I remember playing, and Jason Brown, the person, was playing. Jason Brown, the person, is, is aware of, I can hurt someone, I can get hurt, and stuff like that. And I realized and I was in the game and I was like, I don't want to play no more. And I had a little tightness in my hamstring. And for the first time in my career, I was like, I think I've done something to my hamstring. I can't play. And I didn't play. I don't think I played again that season. Came to the end. Again, I didn't realize where I, what I was in. My uncle died then in July, June, sorry. The my brother's last sibling. Um, though we wasn't close, but it was, it was another death. Then I got the opportunity to go to Arsenal. I was headhunted to go into Arsenal by Arsene Wenger. So it was like, great, there's that little lift. Now I'm going to retire. I then announced my retirement. Then... You know, me and my ex-wife were in a bad, wasn't in a good place. And then I found out she had an affair and then that sent me over the edge. So in nine months, all of that happened. Mm. That's what sent me over the edge. That's when I was not sleeping for, I didn't sleep. I think the most I slept in about four days was probably an hour. So I was getting really paranoid. I was working at Arsenal. Coach now is a totally different thing. It's intense, you know. Trusting people had gone way out the window, you know, the most, apart from my life, just lost one of my pillars, my dad. My other pillar's my mum. And then it's my, 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 my wife at the time. And then when, when she done that, I was just devastated and I become very paranoid. Again, when you're not sleeping, that's what happens as well. Um, I wasn't able to do my job. And I remember my academy manager coming to see me at Arsenal and he he, said, he called me in his office, sorry. And he said, look, the boss, Arsene Wenger, and a few other staff have noticed something's going on. Um, we value, we want you here. We're not going to get involved, but they just slipped me across a number. And I then 
um, I called the number and I remember calling it and I was shaking and I was crying and I said, I think I need to be sectioned. I said, I think I'm going to do something stupid. I can't sleep. I haven't eaten. Um, so, and this was at the PFA, Sporting Chance. They then said, okay, look, we're, we're going to get someone to see. You're going to have someone to see. Um, they said, give us 20 minutes. They rang me about 20 minutes later. They said, look, you've got an appointment with your counsellor, Nick Mercer. I went and seen Nick. I spent about two and a half hours with him. And... You know, we done like a meditation and that helped, but that was just the beginning. Um, after that, Jason Brown, the athletes taken over, you know, but I was so deep in my depression that I was self-harming. And what I mean by self-harming, I was running on a, a treadmill every day for about an hour and 20 minutes at a crazy pace. I lost in the space of a month, just over two stone. Jesus. Just like, if you would have seen me, my face was all drawn in, everything. And I was sleeping, not sleeping. And that's when they offered me tablets. And I said, no, I don't want to take medication. You know, I then go for a run. I'd do two runs a day. I'd run in the morning, run in the evening, because I wasn't sleeping, paranoid. You know, and that was the unraveling and and a lot happened in such a short space of time. And I was seeing my counselor like three times a week and I had an emergency counselor that I could ring 24 hours. Um, and that's when you go through all of that, you start digging deeper. And if it wasn't for Sporting Chance, I can't honestly say that I'm sitting here doing this interview. And especially my counselor, Nick Mercer, who was an amazing, he is an amazing person. And you, you you talk about your kind of where you were then and where you've come to to now, Jason, as your you know as being in like recovery. And I think that that's a really good, I think that's a really good term to use because I think what isn't talked about enough is that depression is an illness. It's a it's a sickness, and it's the same way you would recover from any type of physical sickness or physical illness is that you are in a recovery process. What you know? How did you? To get yourself from that place to where you are now. And whilst, as you say, you still have times where you're low and times where you're not so low, but you are able to kind of, you know, understand those differences in moods. What was that process like? The, the, the process was, it felt long. It felt long. You know, I was great. I, I, I was, say I was great. I was very lucky because my mum supported me, you know, um, it was, it, it seemed long. Winter seemed really long because it was the winter time. Um, there was a lot of things that I had to do that I was selfish with. Um, I had to, you know, my, my counsel was like, always be kind to you. And I was, but I, I, I almost went into like a selfish mode and things needed to be right for me. Um, you know, I, I, I like a drink, but drink was not one of the things that I turned to, funny enough. I couldn't stand a drink, didn't want to eat. I did think about, should I take some drugs? Would drugs help me, you know, to try and sleep, to try and get my mind off things, but I didn't turn to drugs. It was just 
staying conscious to the pain and everything that's going on and trying to learn from it. And each day by day got better. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a total re rebuilding process. It's, it's a stripping down process. It's once you get over the immediate things of the trauma of what just happened in that nine months, you then realize this has been going on for years and you it's almost like a puzzle, like a timeline. You're able to put things together. I was able to put things that had happened between me and my ex, how that linked to this and then that linked to that and then this linked to that and so forth, so forth. And then my dad and, and stuff like that to the point where I was able to then go back as an eight year old kid and say, this is where it started from. And then identify myself as, not, I don't have a split personality, but I, I am very aware that there's, as I said, there's Jason the athlete and there's Jason the person. Jason the person is basically, well, I'm going to be 39. So I've been, I had my breakdown in 2015. So Jason has been getting to know J, Jason the person. I've been getting to know them since 2013 as an eight year old kid. So I'm not saying I, I do kiddie things, yeah. but that's where I've had to restart from. Um, and that's how the rebuilding process has gone. Then it was trying to identify the triggers, what would trigger me. Then trying not to put myself around that. So obviously the frustration, the anger towards my breakup in the marriage, my, you know, just, distancing myself but it's difficult because you've got three kids and then it's you know trying to see how other relationships go meeting other people and stuff like that but realizing that's not the right thing um and then it's making little notes and as i said understanding the triggers so what's going to trigger me okay then i need to be around that less um why is that triggering me then it's the coping mechanisms I can put in place to try and help me with that. Um, and it's realizing and, and having that self-worth and it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to feel like that. And that's the key thing is once I come to terms with, okay, today's not a good day. My day starts getting better. So I like to read you read the books like The Secret and stuff like that. And they say, oh, I walk around with a smile, keep being smiling, blah, blah. But they're right. And the books are right. What they don't, I think, tell you is you've got, there's a process to that. You've got to understand, first and foremost, you must come to terms with how you feel. So if you're having a bad day, I feel rubbish today. I feel low today. That is the first step in getting better. And that's how it's always been is just, okay, when I'm feeling low, people say to me, hey, how are you today? Oh, it's not a good day today. Ask me 20 minutes later, yeah, I'm feeling a lot better because I've come to terms with that. I've not been suppressing it. I've not been hiding it and saying, yeah, I'm great, I'm great. No, I've said, this is how I feel. And it's okay to be like that. And it's okay to be authentic with people. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. I have nothing to be embarrassed about. I have nothing to be embarrassed about being abused as a kid because I didn't ask to be 
to do that. I have nothing to be embarrassed about what happened with my ex-partner. I didn't ask for that. These are things that, are, that have happened in my life and I'm only human. It's, it's you know, with losing family members, with losing people close to me and seeing death, that's the one way it's hard to understand, but I think many people feel like that. But you know what? It's one of them even more reason why you've got to live your life and you've got to be happy with you. And that's when I ended up going to live in Vietnam because I wanted to learn more about me as a person. Can I handle this? Take myself out of all the chaos that's going on here and let's go and have a look at there and then going to Thailand and then obviously coming here. I miss my children greatly, but my children want to probably see the best of me being in London where now they can see the best of me as a person, which is, as I said, it's difficult because we're so far apart. But I would have been on a conveyor belt and probably had many ups and downs where now I feel that I'm more consistent. Yes, I'll have a down. Yes, I'll have a little bit of up, but I'm more there now. Huge thanks to Jason Brown for giving up his time and agreeing to come on the podcast. We spent a couple of hours with him one morning, so I do really appreciate his time, as we do with with all the guests. And I'm sure you'll agree, quite an incredible individual who is able to talk so eloquently and so so clearly about some incredibly difficult times in his life. So huge thanks to, to Jason. I'm going to now put you in the direction of some organisations who can help you if you are wanting to talk. You, of course, got the Samaritans who are available 24 hours a day. And that's on 116123. You can also call the Calm Zone, and their number's on 0800 58 58 58, and their phone line is available 5 pm to midnight. Now, we're going to be back on Monday with something a little bit special. Now, you will remember a few weeks back, we did a series of episodes every single day on different mental health treatments, which was on uh, Mental Health Awareness Week. We've now got another series of episodes, one every single day in the run up to Euro 2020 slash. 2021 sort of uh so next week we'll release an episode every single day starting on monday and that series is entitled football is for everyone and we'll be speaking to individuals and organizations about how football has helped them and others with social isolation self-esteem and improving their mental health so we've got loads of different things going on next week liverpool homeless football clubs will be on there the ullet road church rebels which is a refugee football team we've got um owen coyle jr who's from the amputee football team as well so lots to be looking forward to next week an episode every single day so we hope you can join us for those now we're going to hand you over to to jason brown's mini quiz in just a moment the last person to take part in the mini quiz was chris hall who went straight in at the top of the leaderboard and knocked Alamon off that top spot. Now, there is only two of them in there, I will admit. But let's see how Jason Brown gets on. But before we do that, I will just remind you that the purpose of man marketing is to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. We've started that conversation today, but we're asking you to keep it going. So talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your colleagues, even talk to strangers. But most important of all, remember to listen, because sometimes listening could save a life. Thanks to you once again for listening and joining us on the Man Marking Podcast. And we'll see you again on Monday. So, Jason, then first question. Uh, when you made your Premier League debut against Wigan, you saved the penalty to uh, to secure the 2-1 win. Can you remember who took the penalty for Wigan? Todd 
Yes, correct. Um, do you remember who scored the two goals for, for Blackburn that day? Um, was it Benny McCarthy? Yeah, it was got one of them. And was it... Was it Jason Roberts? It wasn't. It was David Bentley was the other goal scorer. So when you made your Wales debut in 2006, which current Premier League player became Wales' youngest ever player on his debut as well? Gareth Bale. Gareth Bale, yeah. I think there was, there was like four or five debutants in the same match that, that night, I was reading. So you, you mentioned them before, Jason, but for much of your Blackburn career, you were kept out of the side by, by Brad Friedel. Um, and during that time, he started that record-breaking run of consecutive Premier League starts, which must have been a pain in the arse for you, being being the yeah. yeah. minute trying to, trying to hope he got injured at some point. No, um, Brad, Brad was amazing. He was an amazing pro. He looked after himself. He was the one who first really introduced me to yoga. Um, you know, he squeezed every day out of his career and made the most of it. And, you know, I say to people, I learned a lot, so much with with him, um, and excuse me, you know, I'd like to feel that he felt pressured by myself as well in pushing him in training yeah. and when I did play in games. Can you remember how many matches he did on the spin? It was, I think, it was in an eight-year period. Oh my god! No, I remember. The game that he came off, I think when he came off against Wigan, that was the one where it was like, oh wow, that record had been broken. Yeah. Oh, I no, I, I in the eight years, oh, you'd say probably three hundred an odd. Oh, you're not far off. Three ten, three hundred and ten. Oh, wow. wow. It was yeah. it was funny, you know, because the record that he broke was hundred and sixty six. Wow. So he absolutely smashed it to pieces. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so in 2012, you started Chris Coleman's first international match as Wales manager. Um, can you remember which stadium that match was played in? The MetLife Stadium. Yes, in New Jersey. So you're stateside now, so you're there, you know. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, did, yeah, did, yeah. That was in front of 90,000 Mexicans. I've never seen so many Mexican people in my life. <laughs> 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 that was a bit surreal. Yeah. So you reached the, the Scottish Cup semi-final in 2012 at Aberdeen. Um, and you saved another... You've saved quite a few penalties in your career as well. You saved a, a penalty in the quarter-final against Motherwell. Can you remember who took that penalty? Oh, God. I can picture the whole thing. I can't remember it. His name... Lambert or something like that. I could be wrong. It was uh, it was Michael Higdon. Okay. Yeah, I can picture. I can picture the whole thing. Um, in yeah. September of 2010, you went alone to Leeds, as we were talking about before. Can you remember who the keeper that you were brought in to replace was that had gotten injured? Casper Schmeichel. It was Casper Schmeichel. I'd forgotten he'd even played for Leeds. Yeah. me. And then final question. You briefly managed the Air Force United FC in Thailand. In 2019, the team changed their name. Do you know oh, what the new name of the team is? Chinatawa. No. Yeah. Oh. Oh. No. I can't. I've not. 
you know, again, I don't really look back on things. So, uh, I feel like I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this now, anyway. Yeah, uh, I remember it was a. I know there was a city that we was looking to possibly move to beforehand, but I can't remember how the pronunciation. It was. Um, I think they. And again, I am going to butcher this, but it was. Is Utai Tani? Yeah, Utai Tani. Yeah, FC. That was in 2019. You did pretty well there. I think you got about, I think six out of eight. That's not yeah. too shabby. Not too shabby. They'll probably put you <laughs> up the leaderboard. I'll have to check the scores. Um, Brilliant. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Jason. Take care, mate. Take care. Bye bye. Cheers, mate. Thanks.